11. The Monument Builders by Ayn Rand. What had once been an alleged ideal is now a ragged skeleton rattling like a scarecrow in the wind over the whole world. But men lack the courage to glance up and to discover the grinning skull under the bloody rags. That skeleton is socialism. Fifty years ago, there might have been some excuse, though not justification, for the widespread belief that socialism is a political theory motivated by benevolence and aimed at the achievement of men's well-being. Today, that belief can no longer be regarded as an innocent error. Socialism has been tried on every continent of the globe. In the light of its results, it is time to question the motives of socialism's advocates. The essential characteristic of socialism is the denial of individual property rights. Under socialism, the right to property, which is the right of use and disposal, is vested in society as a whole, i.e., in the collective, with production and distribution controlled by the state, i.e., by the government. Socialism may be established by force, as in the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, or by vote, as in Nazi. National Socialist Germany. The degree of socialization may be total, as in Russia, or partial, as in England. Theoretically, the differences are superficial. Practically, they are only a matter of time. The basic principle in all cases is the same. The alleged goals of socialism were the abolition of poverty, the achievement of general prosperity, progress, peace, and human brotherhood. The results have been a terrifying failure. Terrifying, that is, if one's motive is men's welfare. Instead of prosperity, socialism has brought economic paralysis and/or collapse to every country that tried it. The degree of socialization has been the degree of disaster. The consequences have varied accordingly. England, once the freest and proudest nation of Europe, has been reduced to the status of a second-rate power and is perishing slowly from hemophilia, losing the best of her economic blood, the middle class, and the professions. The able, competent, productive, independent men are leaving by the thousands, migrating to Canada or the United States in search of freedom. They are escaping from the reign of mediocrity. From the mawkish poorhouse where, having sold their rights in exchange for free dentures, the inmates are now whining that they'd rather be red than dead. In more fully socialized countries, famine was the start, the insignia announcing socialist rule, as in Soviet Russia, as in Red China, as in Cuba. In those countries, socialism reduced the people to the unspeakable poverty of the pre-industrial ages, to literal starvation, and has kept them on a stagnant level of misery. No, it is not just temporary, as socialism's apologists have been saying for half a century. After forty-five years of government planning, Russia is still unable to solve the problem of feeding her population. As far as superior productivity and speed of economic progress are concerned, the question of any comparisons between capitalism and socialism has been answered once and for all, for any honest person, by the present difference between West and East Berlin. Instead of peace, socialism has introduced a new kind of gruesome lunacy into international relations. The Cold War, which is a state of chronic war with undeclared periods of peace between wantonly sudden invasions, with Russia seizing one third of the globe, 
with socialist tribes and nations at one another's throats, with socialist India invading Goa and communist China invading socialist India. An eloquent sign of the moral corruption of our age is the callous complacency with which most of the socialists and their sympathizers, the liberals, regard the atrocities perpetrated in socialistic countries and accept rule by terror as a way of life, while posturing as advocates of human brotherhood. In the 1930s, they did protest against the atrocities of Nazi Germany. But apparently, it was not an issue of principle, but only the protest of a rival gang fighting for the same territory, because we do not hear their voices any longer. In the name of humanity, they condone and accept the following: the abolition of all freedom and all rights, the expropriation of all property, executions without trial, torture chambers, slave labor camps, the mass slaughter of countless millions in Soviet Russia. And the bloody horror of East Berlin, including the bullet-riddled bodies of fleeing children. When one observes the nightmare of the desperate efforts made by hundreds of thousands of people struggling to escape from the socialized countries of Europe, to escape over barbed wire fences under machine gun fire, one can no longer believe that socialism, in any of its forms, is motivated by benevolence and by the desire to achieve men's welfare. No man of authentic benevolence could evade or ignore so great a horror on so vast a scale. Socialism is not a movement of the people; it is a movement of the intellectuals, originated, led, and controlled by the intellectuals, carried by them out of their stuffy ivory towers into those bloody fields of practice where they unite with their allies and executors, the thugs. What then is the motive of such intellectuals? Power lust, power lust as a manifestation of helplessness, of self-loathing, and of the desire for the unearned. The desire for the unearned has two aspects: the unearned in matter and the unearned in spirit. By spirit, I mean man's consciousness. These two aspects are necessarily interrelated, but a man's desire may be focused predominantly on one or the other. The desire for the unearned in spirit is the more destructive of the two and the more corrupt. It is a desire for unearned greatness. It is expressed, but not defined, by the foggy murk of the term prestige. The seekers of unearned material benefits are merely financial parasites, moochers, looters, or criminals who are too limited in number and in mind to be a threat to civilization until and unless they are released and legalized by the seekers of unearned greatness. Unearned greatness is so unreal, so neurotic a concept that the wretch who seeks it cannot identify it even to himself. To identify it is to make it impossible. He needs the irrational, undefinable slogans of altruism and collectivism to give a semi-plausible form to his nameless urge and anchor it to reality, to support his own self-deception more than to deceive his victims. The public, the public interest, service to the public are the means, the tools, the swinging pendulums of the power lusters' self-hypnosis. Since there is no such entity as the public. Since the public is merely a number of individuals, 
any claimed or implied conflict of the public interest with private interests means that the interests of some men are to be sacrificed to the interests and wishes of others. Since the concept is so conveniently undefinable, its use rests only on any given gang's ability to proclaim that the public c'est moi and to maintain the claim at the point of a gun. No such claim has ever been or can ever be maintained without the help of a gun, that is, without physical force. But, on the other hand, without that claim, gunmen would remain where they belong, in the underworld, and would not rise to the councils of state to rule the destinies of nations. There are two ways of claiming that the public, c'est moi. One is practiced by the crude material parasite who clamors for government handouts in the name of a public need and pockets what he has not earned. The other is practiced by his leader, the spiritual parasite, who derives his illusion of greatness, like a fence receiving stolen goods, from the power to dispose of that which he has not earned, and from the mystic view of himself as the embodied voice of the public. Of the two, the material parasite is psychologically healthier and closer to reality. At least he eats or wears his loot. But the only source of satisfaction open to the spiritual parasite, his only means to gain prestige, apart from giving orders and spreading terror, is the most wasteful, useless, and meaningless activity of all, the building of public monuments. Greatness is achieved by the productive effort of a man's mind in the pursuit of clearly defined rational goals. But a delusion of grandeur can be served only by the switching undefinable chimera of a public monument, which is presented as a munificent gift to the victims whose forced labor or extorted money had paid for it, which is dedicated to the service of all and none, owned by all and none, gaped at by all and enjoyed by none. This is the ruler's only way to appease his obsession, prestige. Prestige in whose eyes? In anyone's. In the eyes of his tortured victims, of the beggars in the streets of his kingdom, of the bootlickers at his court, of the foreign tribes and their rulers beyond the borders. It is to impress all those eyes, the eyes of everyone and no one, that the blood of generations of subjects has been spilled and spent. One may see, in certain biblical movies, a graphic image of the meaning of public monument building, the building of the pyramids. Hordes of starved, ragged, emaciated men straining the last effort of their inadequate muscles at the inhuman task of pulling the ropes that drag large chunks of stone, straining like tortured beasts of burden under the whips of overseers, collapsing on the job and dying in the desert sands, that a dead pharaoh might lie in an impossibly senseless structure and thus gain eternal prestige in the eyes of the unborn of future generations. Temples and palaces are the only monuments left of mankind's early civilizations. They were created by the same means and at the same price a price not justified by the fact that primitive peoples undoubtedly believed, while dying of starvation and exhaustion, that the prestige of their tribe, their rulers or their gods, was of value to them somehow. Rome fell, bankrupted by statist controls and taxation, while its emperors were building colosseums, 
Louis the Fourteenth of France taxed his people into a state of indigence while he built the Palace of Versailles for his contemporary monarchs to envy and for modern tourists to visit. The marble-lined Moscow subway, built by the unpaid volunteer labor of Russian workers, including women, is a public monument. And so is the czarist-like luxury of the champagne and caviar receptions at the Soviet embassies, which is needed while the people stand in line for inadequate food rations to maintain the prestige of the Soviet Union. The great distinction of the United States of America up to the last few decades was the modesty of its public monuments. Such monuments as did exist were genuine. They were not erected for prestige, but were functional structures that had housed events of great historical importance. If you have seen the austere simplicity of Independence Hall, you have seen the difference between authentic grandeur and the pyramids of public-spirited prestige seekers. In America, human effort and material resources were not expropriated for public monuments and public projects, but were spent on the progress of the private, personal, individual well-being of individual citizens. America's greatness lies in the fact that her actual monuments are not public. The skyline of New York is a monument of a splendor that no pyramids or palaces will ever equal or approach. But America's skyscrapers were not built by public funds nor for a public purpose. They were built by the energy, initiative, and wealth of private individuals for personal profit. And instead of impoverishing the people, these skyscrapers, as they rose higher and higher, kept raising the people's standard of living, including the inhabitants of the slums, who lead a life of luxury compared to the life of an ancient Egyptian slave or of a modern Soviet socialist worker. Such is the difference, both in theory and practice, between capitalism and socialism. It is impossible to compute the human suffering, degradation, deprivation, and horror that went to pay for a single, much-touted skyscraper of Moscow, or for the Soviet factories, or mines, or dams, or for any part of their loot and blood-supported industrialization. What we do know, however, is that forty-five years is a long time. It is the span of two generations. We do know that. In the name of a promised abundance, two generations of human beings have lived and died in subhuman poverty, and we do know that today's advocates of socialism are not deterred by a fact of this kind. Whatever motive they might assert, benevolence is one they have long since lost the right to claim. The ideology of socialization. In a neo-fascist form, is now floating by default through the vacuum of our intellectual and cultural atmosphere. Observe how often we are asked for undefined sacrifices to unspecified purposes. Observe how often the present administration is invoking the public interest. Observe what prominence the issue of international prestige has suddenly acquired, and what grotesquely suicidal policies are justified by references to matters of prestige. Observe that during the recent Cuban crisis, when the factual issue concerned nuclear missiles and nuclear war, 
Our diplomats and commentators found it proper seriously to weigh such things as the prestige, the personal feelings, and the face-saving of the sundry socialist rulers involved. There is no difference between the principles, policies, and practical results of socialism and those of any historical or prehistorical tyranny. Socialism is merely democratic, absolute monarchy. That is, a system of absolutism without a fixed head, open to seizure of power by all comers, by any ruthless climber, opportunist, adventurer, demagogue, or thug. When you consider socialism, do not fool yourself about its nature. Remember that there is no such dichotomy as human rights versus property rights. No human rights can exist without property rights. Since material goods are produced by the mind and effort of individual men and are needed to sustain their lives, if the producer does not own the result of his effort, he does not own his life. To deny property rights means to turn men into property owned by the state. Whoever claims the right to redistribute the wealth produced by others is claiming the right to treat human beings as chattel. When you consider the global devastation perpetrated by socialism, the sea of blood, and the millions of victims, remember that they were sacrificed not for the good of mankind, nor for any noble ideal, but for the festering vanity of some scared brute or some pretentious mediocrity who craved a mantle of unearned greatness. And that the monument to socialism is a pyramid of public factories, public theaters, and public parks erected on a foundation of human corpses, with the figure of the ruler posturing on top, beating his chest and screaming his plea for prestige to the starless void above him. December 1962.